Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, we come and we ask that you would make us resilient people. Father, that in the midst of a world that has gone wrong, um, Father, not just in this year, but uh, Father, ever since the garden, Father, this world has, has been unraveled, and yet we know that you are sovereign. Uh, we know that you, are, uh, that, that you love us. Father, the, the suffering of your son who entered this broken world and laid down his life for us tells us it is so. And so, Father, we come to you trusting that because of the death and the resurrection of your son, that our hearts are knit to yours and that that son will come back one day and he will make all things new and he will set this world right and all that is undone, uh, I mean, all, all the hurt of this world will be undone and things will roll back and uh, the, that your goodness will be on full display without sin and suffering. Father, we long for that day. We trust that that, that day is coming. And until that day, God, would you strengthen us? Would you give us a resolve to stay loyal and faithful to you? Because we love you. Father, we pray this thing, these things through the name of Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19 today. Uh, we're going to skip ahead a couple chapters. I'll tell you why here in just a little bit, but we're going to be in chapter 19 this morning. And I, we're going to be talking about resilience and you know, preachers have this kind of saying, this thing we talk about sometimes, that if you, if you preach on pride, you're going to get humbled that week for sure. If you preach on marriage, you're definitely going to have a fight. If you preach on resilience, it probably means what I'm discovering this week is you're going to have a tough week with a lot of crazy stuff happening. I spent about 20 minutes fighting with my printer trying to get here this morning just as I was trying to print this out and rebooting computers and rebooting printers. And like, man, can anything else make it difficult just to get to this point? Uh, but we're here. And so we're going to jump in. But we're going to be talking about re- resiliency. And I might define resiliency as finding strength and resolve to fight through trials without losing heart. Finding strength and resolve internally to fight through trouble without losing heart. It reminds me of a, <clears throat> just when you think about fighting for a resilient life, I think honestly 2020 just kind of demands some resilience, doesn't it? This year is forcing us to need to be resilient people and to have to do that. Some of us are facing the holidays and going into the holidays without being able to be with loved ones. And that's going to be a difficult time. We've got some church members that are sick and isolated from family. Uh, we, we've seen the ins and outs of that. We've got family members uh, that are going through organ transplants. We've got those uh, who, are, who are losing mental capacity. We've got those who are literally facing uh, potential loss of life. So it's going to require resilience. We've got, uh, <clears throat> here's the reality. When we were created for community, we were created for fellowship. We are created for laughter. We were created for, for connection and touch and, and, and for being together. And yet, even in this season, we're, when we look out on one another, most of us are wearing a mask and it makes it hard to feel connected, doesn't it? It makes it hard to come in here and worship when you have to sing through a mask. And it feels like even the good times in life, do they not just feel a little bit muted right now? Like, like you're not seeing everything in, in 3D full color, but everything's just a little dimmed during this time because of the struggles I think we're facing in our world. Uh, the data says anxiety, depression, self-harm rates are rising. Um, it's just been a tough year. But even beyond 2020, I think we're in a time of cultural shift that goes beyond just the difficulties we've seen over 
uh, the last six to nine months. In fact, um, we're, we're saying goodbye to the greatest generation and that generation, like every generation, had its own issues, but they were certainly resilient having lived through uh, the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression and world wars and they had a sense of resiliency and, and there seems to be this shift where we've gone towards seeking a place of comfort over time. We live now in a time of expressive individualism, of self-fulfillment, of immediate gratification. Uh, most people feel entitled to, to be able to do whatever it is they feel like doing at any given moment. Uh, they, they, they wanna be able to put on an identity and move in, a, in and out of that, and they feel attacked if anyone stands in their way. Um, cultural critic and student Simon Sinek says this. Uh, he made a fascinating ob observation about the fragility of our day. He said, young adults expect the minute they start working for a company to be able to have a voice at the top within six months. Um, our parents did never expect that. They knew that, there was, that you were going to start at the bottom and you had to work your way into a place, but they didn't come in thinking they had entree to the top and they were here um, and to, meant to arrive on day one. We, uh, another book, Coddling in the American Minds, another fascinating study that really explores the systematic way in which our kids are being indoctrinated to a more fragile way of, of, of life and really just a fear of the exchange of ideas. The fearfulness on our college campuses of, of having to entertain an idea that might contradict anything you naturally believe or agree in. And in this, uh, just read a quote from that book. It says, their beliefs about their, meaning college students, their beliefs about their own and others' fragility in the face of ideas they dislike would become self-fulfilling prophecy. Not only would students come to believe that they can't handle such things, but if they acted on that belief and avoided exposure to new ideas, eventually they would become less able to interact. Many university students are learning to think in distorted ways, and this increases their likelihood of becoming fragile, anxious, and easily hurt. There's, there's a trend happening in our world that we're becoming more fragile and more anxious. And it makes sense in some ways when you think of the American Idol generation of a group of people that, that think that they should go through life waiting for someone to discover their genius and simply lift them up into a place of, uh, of great celebrity. We make friends with the press, press of a single button and we ghost people just as quickly. And what we see is that, that, that many of us have a difficulty walking through relationships because inevitably, whenever you get in a, a friendship or you move into a family relationship, what you discover is that people are messy. And then relationships require sacrifice and compromise. And it's not long before you realize that all friends and family cost you something. And it becomes difficult to interact. And so as you think about just the way, the, the inability that we seem to have at coping with imperfection and hardship, I think this year has really exposed the cracks in our foundation. You know, when you, when you have a crack in a foundation and it becomes under pressure, that, that crevice becomes an abyss and it creates, creates bigger problems. And I think that's what we were seeing in our day and why things seems to be unraveling. But let me ask you this. I think sometimes we play, we, we act like we're playing dodgeball, trying to, trying to just dodge the effects of sin and suffering. Like you're going through world and it's like, I know sin and suffering's out there, but maybe I can just, I can, I can skillfully dodge all the, all the negative effects and somehow navigate my life through without ever getting hit. But maybe, maybe we need to approach things a little bit differently. Maybe we need to ask a different question and say, God, how can you give me a resilience and a strength and a freedom and a joy in the midst of difficult times to trust you even when hardship comes rather than simply building our lives around trying to dodge it all, but trust God to carry us through it. I'm convinced that Jesus offers us a resilience that we need in times like these. In fact, Jesus says, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. 
He says, but I've overcome the world. Christ will give us resilience if we trust him. Now, so as we, as we enter into this, here's what I want you to know personally. Um, I discovered this part of Mephibosheth's story. We're gonna be looking at Mephibosheth again today. And I discovered this part of, of his story when I was going through a, a difficult time in my own life. In fact, what I discovered was that some part of my life had been wooed into, under, into this kind of false expectation for the way life should go. And so I, I, I had not bought into kind of false philosophies and theologies and other stuff, but I'd been taught to feel certain ways about life through the feelings of movies and speeches and, um, and songs and other things in our culture that had just shaped and formed the way I approached things so that I thought that life was supposed to always go good and be easy and I was supposed to be comfortable and that somehow life was supposed to work in a way that moved me in a, in a, in a way towards greater and greater happiness. And so then when I encountered deep suffering, and it jolted me, it caused me to doubt. It caused me to wrestle and say, well, God, you know, it just caused me to question that, that God had led me to these places and, and that maybe God wasn't really in control. And, 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 and I didn't get kind of rocked to the point of, of abandoning my faith at all. It just was like these nagging questions in the back of my mind that just went, Lord, do you have this? Like I know, what, I know that in my mind, the word says you got this. But right now, I just don't feel like everything's okay. I feel like something's wrong. And what I needed was I needed that unsettling of my own life through sin and suffering that, to reveal both some emotional fragility in my life, but also some, some places where I needed a deeper, stronger theology to drive and to carry those days. And so at some level, I'd bought the lie that God had existed primarily to grant my happiness. And when I became unhappy, it seemed to mean that God had failed. And so I needed to be strengthened. Tim Keller says this, he says, the presumption of spiritual entitlement dooms its bearers to a life of confusion when things in life inevitably go wrong. See, life is gonna go wrong. In this world, there'll be trouble. And yet, God through that. So in that time of my life, I ran across this guy named Mephibosheth. And this guy had nasty feet. He had a mangy old beard. He didn't have a single friend by his side. He seemed to have nothing going for him. But in the midst of that, this, this guy displays this kind of resiliency and faithfulness of life that really, um, that really shaped me and became kind of a, a character for me, an anchor for me that I would go back to. And he seemed to have developed a deep, unaltering faith in the goodness of his King David. And he stayed true and loyal to him, even when he faced hard times. And so that became an example and a model for me. And so I want us to talk about that today and to look at Mephibosheth. And what I see in him is that a grace-formed life is truly a, a resilient life. So let me review. Last week we looked in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and we talked about Mephibosheth. And I introduced you to this Hebrew word called hesed. And hesed is God's kindness. It's God's love. And David in that time had said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I could show the kindness of God? And that word kindness is hesed. It can be translated love, loyal love, steadfast love, faithful love. Um, and so you see this kind of developed meaning in this word. And we said last week, it's really hard to translate in a single English phrase or word. Really, it, kind of one way that, that, that I like to explain it or understand it is, it's an unrelenting kindness wrapped up in an unbreakable promise. That God has said, I am committed to you to show you kindness and grace. And so that's the word hesed. In Mephibosheth, David says, I want to give hesed away to a descendant of my friend Jonathan for the sake of Jonathan. And he grabs this guy named Mephibosheth and he brings him home. And what we saw is that 
When David brings him home, he tells him, fear not, for you will eat at my table always. And he, 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 in a sense, adopts him into his family. He places him under the king's protection. He places him under the king's provision. He restores to him the position of the king's family. And Mephibosheth is now sitting pretty and in a great place. And he says, you'll always eat at the king, king's table. Can I give you a, a little sermon within a sermon? See, when Mephibosheth was brought home, he had suffered greatly at that point in his life, right? I mean, he, he had his worst day and he's five years old. His grandfather and his father had been killed in battle. His grandfather was the king and they'd been run out. And because of that, he had to flee the scene and fleeing the scene, his nurse dropped him. He became crippled in both feet and he'd lived sort of in exile alone as a dependent resting on another person's family all those days until that point. And now God had brought him home or David, king, his king David had brought him home. David had restored him to his rightful place in the king's household. Think about what those days would have been like for Mephibosheth there. Because several years pass, and Mephibosheth has, has continued to interact at the king's table. He's had dinner there with them every day. Think about the relationship that he would have built. He would have heard David singing psalms. He would have gotten to know David's family. He'd have seen how David uh, interacted with, with his kids. And he, he'd been able to learn from, from King David the truth of God's word. And he'd seen how David had wisely executed things within the kingdom. And over those times, he'd developed a relationship and of trust with his king. Friends, you need to develop a relationship of trust with your king and with our Lord in days when times are easy. Don't wait until times are hard. Build into that relationship when things are good so that you have something to lean on when times become difficult. And that's what I think you see with Mephibosheth is that um, this story is gonna, we're gonna join this story a few years later and really things have changed. And so several years have passed and now David's in a different place. In fact, David's in a place of turmoil. The kingdom begins to get separated. His son Absalom rebels. And uh, it says in uh, 2 Samuel 15, and really uh, this story needs like a Lord of the Rings style voiceover. Like if, I were, if, I were video, if we were filming this, I'd want to like pan out and go to like a big wide screen. And then they, you fly in and you zoom in and go in and see David with his counselors and his, his, his war military council. And they're, they're, kind of giving him advice and talking about what needs to happen. He's there with his, uh, you hear drums beating in the background. Hans Zimmer's preparing great music for the scene. They're just kind of, is pounding away. And it says this in 2 Samuel 15, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, else in, <clears throat> or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring us down to ruin. Strike the city with the edge of the sword. Do you feel the tension building in that scene? So you have this scene where David's forced to now flee uh, Jerusalem because his sons rebelled and there's two armies that are building and you feel the tension coming. And it's amazing how often history repeats itself, doesn't it? See, in those days of peace, I think Mephibosheth may have, <clears throat> may, may have thought that, that trouble would never come his way again when he was eating at the king's table. And yet, do you remember what happened to Mephibosheth early in life? Early in life, he'd been at the king's table and the, there'd been a rebellion and he had to leave and his father and his grandfather had been killed and that was the beginning of all of his troubles as a child. And now in the re, in almost repeat of the worst day of his life when his grandfather's kingdom came crashing down, David's kingdom appears to be crashing down and Mephibosheth's reliving some of that nightmare. So 2 Samuel 16 Let's continue the story. It says, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, uh, here's where we're gonna see it. So this is after, after the battle, after uh, things had kind of gotten, gotten uh, David's gotten out of, 
gotten out of Jerusalem, he's fled um, and managed to escape, but he's, he's now living outside of his own palace and his own capital. It says, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where is your master's son? Ziba said, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king had said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my Lord, my king. So what happens here? Mephibosheth, um, when David flees, Mephibosheth, according to Ziba, does what? He says, ah, oh, here's my opportunity. This is my opportunity to find my own kingdom. This is my opportunity to take my rightful place as the descendant of Saul and, and start my own kingdom. And I can rebel against David. This is an opportunity. David's kingdom is divided. You have half of them going to Absalom, half going to David. Maybe there's an opportunity for me to wedge in. At least that's what Ziba says, right? Do you remember Ziba from, from last week? Last week we saw Ziba. Ziba was the former servant of Saul who instead of going to serve Mephibosheth when Mephibosheth was away, stayed home and enjoyed all of Saul's goodness, all the good things of Saul with David. Remember when David inquired and he said, is there anyone of the house of Saul that I could show kindness to for the Jonathan's sake? Ziba was the one he asked that question to. And what was Ziba's response? There is a, there is a grandson, but he's a cripple. And we talked about his graceless response that he looked at Mephibosheth and said, he's just a cripple. He, he's, he's only, his only benefit to us is whatever he could do, whatever he could accomplish, whatever he could achieve. And so Ziba had had, had this graceless response. And now Ziba has taken um, all these goods. Side note, where, where would Ziba have gotten all these things that he's now generously giving away to King David? But these things all belong to Mephibosheth. So he's taken from Mephibosheth's things and he's given these two as a gift to King David. But then what we're gonna see is that he has set this thing up and he said to David that Mephibosheth is trying to, trying to attempt his own coup. Now the eventual encounter between David and Mephibosheth carries the tension of this whole scene. David's gonna say, uh, as they interact and as, as they, they come back together at the end of uh, this, when, when, when kind of the dust settles and everything goes away, David's gonna look at Mephibosheth. He said, Mephibosheth, why did you not go with me? And you can almost hear the hurt in his voice. You can, you can hear the pain in his voice. And so that's where we pick up our story today. David's in hiding again. Um, he's, he's had to flee. He's stinging from the betrayal of his own son. He's stinging from the betrayal of some of his friends and his counselors and his military advisors that went over on the other side and fought against him. He's kind of reeling from the difficulties of all that and knowing that his own house has divided against him. And in that, um, you, he comes back and he re-encounters Mephibosheth and that's where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Look with me at verse 24. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king, 
but your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant, my lord the king. But my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do, do therefore whatever seems good to you. For all my father's house were but doomed men to were, uh, were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to him, oh, let him take it all since my Lord, the king has come safely home. Do you catch the scene of what's happening here? So they finally come back and Mephibosheth re-engages with David and David expresses that hurt. And he says, Mephibosheth, why did you not go with me? And what's Mephibosheth's response? He says, well, king, I'm lame. And my servant Ziba said, I'll go get a donkey for you. But he never came back. He left me and he abandoned me and stranded me in Jerusalem. And so I couldn't come to you. There was no way for me to get there. And he says, and furthermore, he says, Ziba has slandered, has slandered me in saying that I was going to betray you, that I was going to try to rise up against you. It could be, nothing could be further from the truth. And so Mephibosheth displays his loyalty to the king, even in the midst of this hardship. Now, here's what's interesting. You know, so there's a little bit of a difficulty in this passage where people look and go, well, then why did David get half the stuff to Ziba? Well, here's, I think, what's happening. David is actually trying to, trying to reunite his kingdom. He's trying to bring them back together. He's actually forgiving some of those who rebelled against him. He's, he's giving them some grace and trying to bring back unity to the people. But here's what he knows. Can he really ask, uh, ask Mephibosheth to trust Ziba as his servant again? No, Ziba's already betrayed him. He can't do that. And so because of that, he can't go and ask, put Mephibosheth back underneath Ziba's care. So he says, I'm just gonna send Ziba away and let him have half the stuff and let him take care of it. But Mephibosheth, we'll give you others that will help take care of you. And so he, he comes up with a practical solution that just solves the problem. But here's what I want us to, to think about today as we look at this passage. First, I want us to look at, at what allowed Mephibosheth to display such resilience and such resolve in the midst of a difficult time. And this scene always uh, amazes me and I love everything about what, what I see from Mephibosheth. But first I want us to make sure we don't miss the key to the whole passage. Verse 28, you notice this is, this is what hinges and, and where Mephibosheth grounds his entire argument for everything he does. In, in verse 28 he says, all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord the King but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. He goes back to David's past grace, doesn't he? He points back to David's past kindness. He goes back and says, David, I was like an exile living as an enemy of yours away from, away from the kingdom and I was doomed to death as one who should have been an enemy of the king and yet you came and you rescued me by your kindness and your grace and you brought me home and you made me like a son seated at your table. And, and he said, we were doomed to death and you made me a son. Because of that, I could never turn my back on you. Because of what you've done, because of your Hesed love, because of your grace, I could never turn my back on you. So where does the grounds of Mephibosheth's re, uh, resiliency lie? It really lies in the love that David showed him. It begins with um, David's love. David loved first, then Mephibosheth learned to love. See, this is ultimately the street where, where resilient faith comes from. Loyal love given to us produces loyal love from us back to our king. That the king who rescued us um, 
gives a, puts, pours out his love for us. And in response to that, we pour love back towards our king. And it's like in the New Testament where it says, um, he's, um, that God, God first loved us. And because God first loved us, we respond in love to him. And so the grounds of his love is Mephibosheth looks back at the kindness that God showed him or that his king showed him. Because of that, he wants to respond in like and show kindness back to his king. And that's important. It's not merely, Mephibosheth's not merely trying to earn David's love here. Let me ask you this. What, what could Mephibosheth, as a crippled man in the time of war, what could he have done to earn David's love and faithfulness? For him, there's nothing he could do. There was nothing he could do to, prove, to, to, to earn God's love. And that's part of why I love this particular story so, so much is the fact that Mephibosheth is crippled in an ancient world especially highlights kind of his impotence to be able to earn the king's affection and favor. And so he has to simply trust the goodness of the king and David's love for him was an act of sheer grace. But here's, a, here's the point. Mephibosheth knew he already had God's love or David's love. He trusted it and he responded out of a place of security. He's not trying to earn it. He already has got, he already has David's love. He already trusts it. He already has a relationship with him. He already knows that David um, cares for him. And, and in response, he's doing everything he does because of David's love, not in order to earn it. Now, this is important for us in, in, in understanding the way grace forms us. This isn't just a nuanced conversation. The order, the order here is really important for us. We need to understand that God's love comes first. In fact, Dane Orland says it this way. He says, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from it. What's he mean by that? He says, you can either, you can either live with a sense of desperation trying to earn God's favor and earn God's love and earn God's smile, or you can recognize that you already have it. And because you already have it, you just simply want to live for him. It is an act of love and response. And that's what we see I think here in Mephibosheth's life. So you see how the gospel grounds, uh, the gospel or the good news or the grace of, um, of, of Christ ought to ground our resiliency? That, that somehow what produces resilience, a resilient life in us is not us trying to earn God's favor and his care. So sometimes what happens when life doesn't go well is we think, well, I must not have lived well enough. If I did not sinned, then maybe God would have blessed me. If, if, I, if I would have been more faithful, if I would have felt it more deeply then maybe I wouldn't be going through this hard time. If, if I were more, uh, if I had a, a bigger faith, then maybe I would never go through difficulty in the way that this seems to say. But what we see in, in the truth of God's word is that it's not the case, that we, we, we love God because God first loved us. And so that's what drives this whole passage. So now given that, that kind of Understanding, understanding what the engine of that resiliency is that's being produced, uh, uh, that's producing this in Mephibosheth's life. I want to show you six characteristics of a life properly ordered by a relationship to your to our King. So, if if you understand the order of how this works, that God loves us and we respond in love, that that's the nature of a grace formed life, and that grace that we receive from Him produces resilient life and obedience and faithfulness in us then I want us to talk about some of the characteristics of a resilient life. First thing I think we see is Mephibosheth's a wonderful example of, of a life um, ordered by loyalty to his king. So the first thing we see in Mephibosheth's loyalty to his king, it says, he had ne neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes. I think there, there's a bigger point to that than other, other than just this guy's a slob. Like most of you look and go, so he's just a college student, right? 
I mean, that, that describes like half the college students in our country. You know, beards that are a little out of control. They haven't washed their clothes. They've not taken care of things. Uh, that, but there's a, there's a different point that I think this text is trying to show us. Now, let me ask you this. If you're a crippled man, abandoned by those who are supposed to help you, betrayed and uh, slandered by your friends and left for dead among the enemy, um, where do you turn? And what do you do to try to prove your innocence? Well, there's not a whole lot you can do. You can't just run after them. You can't chase them down. He's unable to, to take care of those. But for Mephibosheth, something finds a way, he finds a way to prove his innocence. There was something in his chest that demanded and drove him to prove his loyalty to his king. And so he says to David, in a sense, he's able to prove his loyal love, not by his productivity or achievement or morality, but through his suffering. He says, David, if you're cast out of the kingdom and you're gonna suffer, then I'll suffer too. David, if you're not gonna be able to wash your clothes, then I won't wash my clothes. David, if you're not gonna be able to have anyone trim your beard, then I won't trim my beard. And if you can't wash your feet, I won't wash my feet. The, the, to the extent that you suffer, I will suffer. And so his unkept beard is really a sign of solidarity with the suffering king. He's saying, if David, if you're cast out, I will live as though I'm cast out because my heart is so knit to yours that, that I want to be like you. I wanna be with you, I wanna be present and I can't physically get there right now, but I can suffer where I am because you're suffering in your circumstances. And in this, man, I think for us, especially in a world that's built, built so much on self-expression, on our own popularity and our own achievement and our own image and identity and all these things. Uh, it's something countercultural to think of faithfulness as merely suffering and staying true to your king, of simply being loyal to him, of simply trusting or simply committing yourself to him even when things don't go your way. And so I think the first thing we see in resilient life is loyalty. The second thing we see is that, that Mephibosheth shows honor to his king. That's what he says, my Lord, the king is like an angel of God. He just says to David, you've been like the messenger of God that's, that's given me a, a glimpse of who God really is. You know, angels were those who represented the Lord, who spoke for the Lord, who, who, who described the Lord to others and, and brought messages for the Lord. He says, you're like an angel of the Lord. You're the one that communicated who God is to me. And so he's honoring King David. And so there's a sense of his trust in that. Secondly, or thirdly, we see his, he shows faith in his king. I, I love that, that in response to this, in the midst of this difficult time, that Mephibosheth, as he comes wandering back in and finally on his crutches, reapproaches David, his one request, he just says, David, do whatever seems good to you. And don't you love the trust and the confidence in that? That he comes to him and says, whatever seems good to you, you do that. I trust you completely. See, if, if we've received a grace, uh, the gift of grace, then our betrayals and losses um, certainly sting, but they don't, they don't derail us from our love of our king. That even in the midst of difficulty, we can trust him that because he's carried us to this point, we can trust him with what lies ahead. Um, if he's brought us this far, we trust that he will go and continue to deliver us down the road. Now in our day, I think, it's important for us to see how suffering strengthens and matures us. Uh, we, we tend to think oftentimes in our spiritual circles that suffering is just a bad thing that we just have to, we have to try to avoid that we wanna do. But the reality is what we see in scripture is suffering actually produces something good, good in us. Suffering actually matures us in a way that takes the mental understanding of who God is and increases our experiential confidence in the goodness of God. 
Sometimes it's only suffering that can carry us through difficult times and show us that we can truly trust God in, in, in the circumstances of our lives. Now, oftentimes you think about your kids and if, you know, if you've ever had a little one running around the house, one of the things I love to do with my little ones is I have them go get up on the stairs and we have a little, a little landing where our staircase turns and I have them get up there and I'm like, okay, jump. And see, it's one thing for them to, to know that I'm bigger and stronger than they are. It's another thing for them to stand on a landing and feel free to simply jump and trust me. That's an experience of my strength and bigness that goes beyond mentally their understanding and looking and going, well, he's obviously larger than I am. And see, I think what happens with us oftentimes spiritually is we've, we've heard the songs, we've come in here and we've heard sermons, we've thought all these things. We know intellectually that, you know, we say these things like God is sovereign. You know, God is big. God can carry me through. Uh, we, Chris preached a couple weeks ago on, on Psalm 23. and You know that, that, that the Lord is with me and that, uh, that, that he'll carry me through the valley of the shadow of death. And we hear these things. We know these things to be true. But it's another thing experientially to jump, isn't it? And to go through times of suffering, to go through times of trial, and to learn experientially to be confident in God's goodness, even in the midst of the reality. And that produces something good in us. And I think that's what we see in Mephibosheth's life, that because he's been carried through these things and he's experienced God's grace, he comes to this place and he has faith in his king and he says, David, I know you're good because through you I experienced the hesed love, the loyal, kind, loyal love and the kindness of God. I will trust you, do whatever seems good to you. And what it look like for us when we come to trials to look at the Lord and just say, Lord, I know that you are good. I've seen in Jesus your, your hesed love, your kindness, your faithfulness and your commitment to me. Do whatever seems good to you, Lord, I trust you. So often we come to the Lord in different, with different approaches during times of trial, don't we? In simple trust. Next, we, he shows surrender to his king. Notice what he says uh, here. He says, uh, what further right have I then to cry to the king? He says, look, I was, I was your enemy. I was helpless. I was outcast. And you brought me home and made me like a son. And because of that, what, what, uh, what right do I have to cry out to you and to whine to you at all? And it's really what he's saying is, Lord, why would I whine to you? You've already been so good to me. You've been good to me far beyond anything that I, that I deserve, anything that I earn. Why, why, would I, why would I cry or whine to you at all? See, most of us, I think, find that a little bit difficult to do, doesn't it? Don't we? In the midst of hardship. But when you understand the sheer grace of God's love for you, that I did nothing to deserve it, as Romans said, that while I was helpless, while I was an enemy, uh, while I was on my own and unable to earn God's favor, Christ died for me. He restored me. Because when you understand the sheer grace of God's love for us, um, I think it produces a surrender in us. But most of us in reality are unprepared for the difficulty that sin and suffering brings us. See, it's, it's normal to struggle through trials, but what I see and what I saw in my own life and what I see in the life of, of many of us is that we don't just struggle through trials, we're actually disoriented by trials. And when trouble comes, it actually rocks us to the point that, that we feel like the foundation is shaking. You ever have that situation of being in an earthquake and all of a sudden the whole ground starts moving and you kind of do this deal because you're wondering, I, I can actually do that on the stage. Sometimes I feel that way here. But when you get there and it almost feels disorienting because it just feels like there's this wave going through and everything feels unsettled. That's what I see sometimes in us is that trials and trouble make us unsettled. They disorient us. And yet Jesus told us that we'd have trouble in this world. And we should know that that is the case. Um, but what I think what it reveals in us is that we too, like much in our, many in our culture, have developed some fragility. 
that, that we've adopted some of the mindset of the world. And that's honestly, if I could say the most troubling part of 2020 for me has been watching Christians who just, who are living as though the whole world's up for grabs and they're disoriented by the trouble that we're facing this year. And so they're lashing out and they're screaming and they're crying out against things. And the, the anger that's welling up in them is, is really, it's an, act, it's, it's, it's an act that shows a lack of faith in God. And they've been come, they've, they're not just pressing through the troubles, but they're actually disoriented by them. And what I think it shows in us is that um, really we need an anchor that carry, carry us through our storms. We need to become a little more like Mephibosheth. And in that, I think we need to understand God's loyal love a little more. Um, J.I. Packer uh, said something, I read about this recently, said something to the effect of, in, uh, if in suffering we ask why this is happening, we might not find an answer. But if we change the question to how can I glorify God in this suffering, we will find an answer. And I think that sometimes is a better question. It's not just when trouble comes, go, why, Lord? But if we, if we shifted and said, how, Lord, should I, should I honor you in the midst of the suffering? Um, I think it brings a different perspective. Next thing we see in Mephibosheth's life and that uh, grace-formed, resilient life in us ought to look like is he shows freedom because of his king. You notice what happens when uh, Ziba, uh, or when, when, when the question comes down, like when David says, okay, well, what do I do? Ziba's claimed this, you've claimed this. I can't, you know, I wasn't there to hear exactly how this whole thing went down, what I do. He says, well, just here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna solve this problem because I've got other matters I need to attend to. I'm just gonna give Ziba half because you can't trust him and I can't trust him to take care of you and I'll give you half and we're just gonna trust that's enough that that's gonna provide for you. And what's Mephibosheth's response? Because it could be pretty easy at that time to go, Whoa, 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 he betrayed me. He slandered me. He was my servant. Ziba was the one that was here to take care of me. His one job in life was to make sure that I had everything I needed. And he betrayed me, left me for dead, slandered me to you and lied. I want justice for this right now. That would have been pretty easy to do, right? Like I could see very easily moving in that kind of a place. And yet what does Mephibosheth say? He hears David's pronouncement and he says, Ziba's gonna take half. And he goes, oh, just let him take it all. <laughs> let him have everything. I don't need it. Why? What gave him the freedom? What allowed him to have such freedom to just say, I'll part with it all if that's your, if that's your desire, king? The reason was he trusted the king. See, he didn't have any needs. If, if he was already as one of the king's sons, if he was gonna be uh, eating at the king's table, if he was gonna be included in all the king's bounty and all the king's goodness, and he was under the king's care, and like David has said, you're under my protection, you're under my provision, I'll restore to you your position, you're gonna be like one of my own children adopted into my family. If that's the case, then he's like, well, David, if you're gonna take care of me, why do I need all this? I have no need for any of this stuff. Let Ziba have it all. And so I love that you see this kind of surrender and this freedom that he has. Why is it that he can do that? Uh, you see that in the last thing. Uh, the last thing I think we see in Mephibosheth's life is that he seeks the glory of his king. You notice what Mephibosheth says. He says, he can have it all because what? You, my king, have come safely home. He says, my, my heart's wrapped up in yours, king. And king, if you're good, I'm good. King, if you're home, if you're safe, if you're, if you're back in where you should be and you're being lifted up and exalted as the king of this place as you should be, then I have no other needs because my, my glory is wrapped up in your glory and you've come safely home. What, friends, does what matter most in our lives? The glory of our king? Is that the thing that drives us more than anything? 
See, sometimes I think of Mephibosheth, and for me, he becomes, this guy's become kind of an anchor for me, and an example for me of how I want to live, of the faithfulness I want to live. And there were times in this, in this situation where he couldn't, he couldn't fix anything. Yeah, he couldn't achieve anything. He couldn't, he couldn't change the circumstances. He couldn't create anything. He couldn't do anything to change the, the king's situation, but he could suffer alongside the king. He could be loyal to the king. He could honor the king. He could surrender to the king. He could seek the king's glory. And he was faithfulness in all, in, in all things. And friends, we live in a day of, of action. We live in a day of immediacy where we wanna see things happen very much. And I think sometimes the most beautiful life is the one that just simply stays loyal. Mephibosheth stayed put. He stayed faithful. He proved his loyalness, his loyalty to his king. And sometimes I think we just have to hang on until the hurricane passes. See, sometimes in, when storms of life come, our natural instinct, I think, as American Western people, is that we think when the storm comes, our job is to fix the storm. And I think sometimes our job is just to stay faithful to our king in the midst of the storm. And that's what I see in Mephibosheth. You know, as we think about how to apply this and what we want to do with it, um, I, I always think David's question when he, when he looks at Mephibosheth and I think after all the things that David had gone through and David had seen so many people, his, his own household turn against him. He'd seen uh, his army, uh, some of his army turn against him. He'd seen some of his counselors turn against him and he was forced back out for David. Remember David had, had been in hiding from Saul for all those years. And David's back out in the wilderness now hiding from his own son Absalom, re-experiencing all those things. And then he hears this awful report that this, this son that he loved, Mephibosheth, I mean, here's this false report that he had turned his back on him. And, and he comes to Mephibosheth and says, Mephibosheth, why did you not go with me? And in that, I hear an echo of Jesus, this question of his disciples. Because there was later in, in Jesus' life when Jesus' disciples were abandoning him, when things got hard and they realized that this isn't gonna be simply a, a happy kingdom right now, but that he's going to suffer and that, many, that, that this is gonna be a difficult time. And many of his disciples began to peel away and, and not stay faithful and true to Jesus. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, are you, are you going to go away too? And he asked them and they said, what? Lord, where would we go? You hold the keys to all of life. Lord, you are the one. And so you're the one that holds the words, words of eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you're the, you're the holy one of God. What they say to Jesus, Jesus, you're our king. You hold the keys to all of life. Where else would I turn? And friends, I think like the disciples, that's where we need to be today. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, I think um, many fall away. Many turn their back and I think Jesus would look at us and say, will you stay true? Will you stay with me? And when we know the grace of Christ, we know the love of Christ, we know that while we were yet enemies, he died, he died for us. We know we can trust him. And we know really what the grounds of our, of our obedience ought to be. And that grace ought to produce a resilience in us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for Jesus. I thank you that as good a king as David was, that Jesus is far, far greater. Uh, Father, we're, um, we know David was, was just a man. And yet in his kindness to Mephibosheth, we see an example of your kindness to us. Father, would your grace to us 
convince us that we can trust you even in dark times. That in all the troubles and trials of life that you would build resilience in us, that you would strengthen us and give us resolve to stay true to you. Father, make us those who, because we've received loyal love, offer loyal love back to you. Father, be glorified in us. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.